Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We continue to follow the deadly Israel-Hamas war that is unfolding in the Middle East. So far, outside estimates put the total number of dead around 1,900 with more than 7,200 people injured. To break down those numbers a little bit, the Israeli government estimates that over 1,000 Israelis have been killed in the conflict and more than 2,700 others have been injured. And Gaza's health ministry estimates that 900 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza with more than 4,500 injured. Those numbers are sure to grow as Hamas continues to fire rockets into Israel and Israel continues to bomb the Gaza Strip, where more than two million civilians live without the freedom to move beyond its borders. Today, NBC News' Richard Engel got a look at some of the Israeli communities where residents have been evacuated. Israeli troops are still trying to secure the country four days after the worst terror attack in Israel's history, and today moved into the village of Kafar Uzza on the border with Gaza. All the residents are gone, either evacuated, killed, or kidnapped. There are still bodies everywhere. The Israelis in body bags. Hamas gunmen were left rotting where they fell, next to the flags they brought to declare victory. Right now, Israeli defense forces say they are amassing more than 360,000 reserve troops as they prepare for a possible ground invasion of Gaza. Complicating that is the fact that Israeli authorities believe Hamas is currently holding at least 150 people hostage. And Hamas has threatened to execute one Israeli hostage each time Israel bombs Gaza without warning and promising an ISIS-style broadcast of the execution. Now, it is almost impossible to imagine the fear and the suffering those hostages are currently facing. By now, many of you have seen the terrifying images of Israeli concert goers running for their lives on Saturday as armed Hamas militants began firing on the crowd of civilians and taking hostages. People were ripped from their homes, some of them brutally murdered, others dragged into cars to be taken as captives. The U.S. government confirmed today that 14 American citizens have lost their lives so far. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters that the number of Americans believed to be missing as a result of this war is 20 or more. Today, the families of Americans believed to be hostages held a press conference to urge the U.S. and Israeli governments to take swift action and bring their family members home. One of the Americans still missing is Hirsch Goldberg Poland, who, is, who witnesses say was loaded into a Hamas vehicle, missing one arm, and wearing an improvised tourniquet. Other Americans met even more tragic fates. Hayam Katzman moved into Israel to dedicate his life to finding peace between Israelis and Palestinians. He was one of the 14 Americans killed by Hamas. The last 24 hours have been filled with desperate pleas from the family members of these potential hostages, families that are hoping and praying that their loved ones are still alive. If anyone can hear me, if my daughter hears me, 
Adi, my Adi, I'm begging you, please be strong and know that we are looking and we will not stop until we will find you no matter what. Get back our family, get our, our loved ones. That should be the top priority, nothing else. Dozens of my friends, my neighbors were killed to my son, Sagi, who grew up on the kibbutz, Sagi Dekelchen. And he's an arm length away in Gaza, evidently, but couldn't be farther from me and our family right now. Tomorrow, Secretary of State Antony Blinken will fly to Israel, where he is expected to meet with senior Israeli security officials and discuss what resources the U.S. can provide. His visit comes as American aircraft carrier the USS Gerald Ford has just arrived in the region to deter further attacks. Today, President Biden addressed the nation, condemning the terrorism of Hamas and making clear that America would remain a steadfast ally to Israel. This is terrorism. This is an act of sheer evil. More than 1,000 civilians slaughtered, not just killed, slaughtered in Israel. Among them, at least 14 American citizens killed. Parents butchered, using their bodies to try to protect their children. So in this moment, we must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. Joining me now is John Kirby, the spokesperson for the National Security Council. He's also a retired rear admiral for the U.S. Navy. Admiral Kirby, thank you for being here tonight. And let me just get right to it. I know it's a very busy day and we appreciate your time. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes to determine the status of these American hostages? We're working very, very hard, Alex, to do exactly that. The first step in doing that is, of course, hearing from the families themselves. I mean, uh, they have been uh, a, a very important source of information uh, as they learn or try to learn the whereabouts uh, of their of their loved ones. So that helps us develop the pool of those who might likely be held hostage. And right now it's a small handful. But as Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, said today, it's possible that some of these other unaccounted for Americans could end up in the hostage pool. Number two, the second big step is really keeping that communication open with our Israeli counterparts because they're on the ground. They've got better intelligence than we do. Uh, they have a better sense uh, of the hostage uh, situation. And so we've been obviously talking hour by hour uh, with our Israeli counterparts to try to get more information. And then three, we have made it clear to the Israelis that we're willing to provide our own hostage recovery expertise, uh, advice and counsel from uh, federal law enforcement from the U.S. military, from even the U.S. intelligence community, uh, if that would be helpful. And so we're in active communications with uh, the Israelis also about providing some advice, counsel, expertise that we have uh, in hostage recovery. I know that President Biden was very clear today in his remarks from the White House that the U.S. would stay stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel. But he did issue a sort of, I'm not going to call it a warning, there was a sort of caveat in what he said, and I'd love to just play the sound back to you to get your thoughts on, on what, how we should interpret this. Can we take a listen? We also discussed how democracies like Israel and the United States are stronger and more secure when we act according to the rule of law. Terrorists purposely target civilians, kill them. We uphold the laws of war, the law of war. It matters. There's a difference. 
What? Who was that? A, was that a cautionary note sounded to the Israelis? The idea that terrorists purposefully target civilians and killed them. We uphold the laws of war, the law of war. It matters. There's a difference. Is the Biden administration worried that uh, the Israeli government may be violating the rules of war? Primarily, the president was was making clear the difference and the distinction uh, between uh, what Hamas is doing, the deliberate, indiscriminate butchery of innocent civilians uh, in Israel. Now, more than a thousand of them literally murdered in the streets, in their homes, at a music festival, as compared to what uh, Israel needs to do to defend its citizens. So, look, we I want to be very clear. We don't want to see one more single innocent civilian life taken uh, or injured here, uh, one more family affected uh, by uh, by violence uh, that an innocent civilian, you know, should never be should never be subject to war. But but Hamas is placing uh, these Palestinians in Gaza in greater risk and jeopardy because they are staffing themselves in headquarters and hospitals and schools and residential buildings. Uh, we know that the, the Israelis are conducting aggressive operations. Uh, we understand the need to do that. Uh, but the president was making a case that, like the United States, Israel is a democracy. Israel does respect the law of war. Israel does respect life, and the and 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 tries to 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 uh, to operate in that in that in that way. But again, we're we're going to be obviously staying uh, closely aligned, closely closely lashed up with uh, with Israel uh, to, to, to as they move forward and making sure that they have what they need uh, to defend themselves. Yeah, I was just noting that. I mean, the president was very clear about what he thought of Hamas's uh, terror. Terrorism and slaughter of innocents. It was just the the specific mention that democracies like the U.S. and Israel are stronger and more secure, secure when we act according to the rule of law. But but let me ask you about the military assistance that the U.S. may be prepared to send over to Israel. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And are there any concerns about the fact that the Iranians may be behind these attacks ultimately and this could sort of end up being a proxy war between the U.S. and Iran? Nobody wants to see this war, uh, uh, this conflict expand or escalate. And that's the real principal reason why those naval forces were pushed it into the eastern Mediterranean. Very capable ca carrier strike group, of course. Um, a lot of capability on board those ships. Uh, and it's a clear message of deterrence to any other actor, whether it's a terrorist group, uh, organization, or another nation state that thinks that now's the opportunity to take advantage of what's going on in Israel. These are, you know, anybody with, with enmity towards Israel. This is not the time to do that. And that's the message that the president was sending when he ordered the carrier strike group into the Eastern Med. We don't want to see this uh, conflict escalate. We don't want to see uh, it expand. And we have, by the way, significant national security interest, of course, in the region ourselves. Uh, we want to make sure that we can protect and defend those national security interests. That's what this move was all about. Admiral John Kirby, really appreciate the time and thoughts and the clarifications tonight. Thanks so much. Yes, ma'am. Joining me now on set, Bobby Ghosh, Bloomberg opinion columnist covering culture and foreign affairs, and Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker. Thanks for joining me tonight, folks. Um, let me just first get your thoughts on how the U.S. calibrates its response here, Susan. Uh, number one, there are Americans that are being held over there. Um, it's a shocking, shocking acts of brutality on the part of Hamas. Uh, the Israeli retaliation has been swift and it has been severe. Uh, it sounded like the president was a little bit concerned about uh, Israeli targeting of civilian infrastructure. Uh, I, I wonder 
what you think the sort of primary calculations are for the Biden administration right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. First of all, you're hearing, I think, a genuine message of outrage from President Biden today. I was very struck by that. Uh, in some ways, it was among the angriest I've ever heard him yeah. as as the president. Uh, he was horrified. Uh, I think he had just had his phone call with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu before he came out and spoke. Uh, the stories and the details that we're getting of the atrocities on the ground uh, there, you know, you wouldn't be human not to relate to the horror of what's unfolding. And by the way, we may hear even worse things in the coming days. Uh, these, these have been active, in effect, crime scenes and war zones uh, still over since Saturday. So, number one, I think genuine outrage, uh, genuinely wanting to say we stand shoulder to shoulder with Israel. I think that's a very important message from the president. We're there to do what we can militarily. But there are so many questions. What does it mean that there's going to be an offensive operation now yeah. in Gaza? And so it's very hard to answer the question of uh, what the Biden administration approach to it is, because we don't know what the Israeli approach, approach to the conflict is. is. And of course, you know, this is a, a nightmarish situation in Gaza where it's, it's almost impossible to imagine the Israelis, even if they were determined to, that they could separate civilians and uh, the targets of Hamas. Well, let's talk about that, Bobby. Yeah. Just the, the sort of difficult uh, calibration that Prime Minister Netanyahu must, must make between this presumed ground invasion and the 150 maybe plus hostages that are being held in locations unknown. What do you think goes in? Where do you think his sort of Interests lie primarily at this point if he has to make a decision. Well, it's it's an it's an impossible decision to make. You you're asking someone to choose between getting uh, justice for those who've already been killed uh, and maimed, and also securing freedom for those who are being held hostage. The scale of this is unprecedented. I can't think. Not never mind uh, in the Israeli-Palestinian context. I can't think of any other military context in which, in modern times, there have been this many hostages held, and with the direct threat that uh, if you come in, we will execute these people. This is completely um, unprecedented, and you can imagine the as these images that Susan referred to come up. You can imagine the sense of urgency, the sense of anger, the sense of rage. Again, the the, the Israeli, the IDF, the soldiers would not be human if they didn't felt feel uh, a sort of compulsion to go and uh, and avenge the fallen. Uh, which is this is the context in which Biden's statement uh, that you pointed out, uh, you know indirectly advising restraint. Uh, I think uh, that's the that's the context. We've sent an aircraft carrier that is to restrain uh, anybody else from getting into the fray. But sooner or later, Biden's also going to have to restrain Netanyahu from overplaying his hand. Friends don't let friends commit war crimes. Yes, yeah, that's part of the that's part of the friendship, too. Yeah, most certainly. I, I got to ask Susan and Bobby how and why Hamas, what the strategy for Hamas is, because in the words of one uh, analyst in the in the New Yorker, actually today, this is a suicide mission for Hamas as an entity. How does Hamas even begin to survive something as brutal and horrific like this as a legitimate sort of organization, if you will? Well, first of all, the answer is it's not a legitimate organization. Right. So let's just say that, okay? Anybody who does this is not a legitimate organization. They have been, in fact, a listed terrorist organization of the United States since the late Clinton era. Uh, you know, they are, this is, this is just 
barbarism. Uh, it is murder. It is um, uh, there's no possibility of Hamas being a legitimate organization. So I think that's very important to say, because there seems to be a lot of confusion on that point. Um, what was the strategy behind it? It does seem as though uh, they decided to take an unacceptable status quo and blow it up, that they were not looking to have uh, any way to get back across that bridge. Right. Yes. So they've blown up the bridge behind them. Uh, I do think that it seems aimed uh, certainly at but, but provoking Chris, exactly the kind of outrage that is now occurring in, in Israel, in the region, and here in the United States. Well, but also destroying Gaza. I mean, that's the other part of the calculation. You're blowing up the bridge with your people still on it yeah. to some degree, right? Well, they, these people that. are hostages in many respects as well. I ran into a very senior former U.S. official the other day who pointed that out to me, who said, you know, look, you have to understand that even within Gaza, if there was a legitimate way of taking public opinion, uh, it's very likely that Hamas is not supported by a majority of the population. They have been victimized uh, by these people who claim to be leading them. It, this is not, not only is this not anywhere near a democracy in terms of how, what has Hamas done to the people of Gaza as it is ruled? This is a, an intolerant, uh, theocratic state in which you are not allowed freedom of speech, in which you, any expressions of dissent have been brutally punished inside of Gaza. And so these people are also uh, at the at the mercy. They didn't, you know, take a vote and decide to undertake this attack sure. on Israel. Bobby, your thoughts on on the sort of the calculation. And we will talk about Iran's involvement in this mm -hmm. as well, because that factors into how Hamas even began to do this. Yes. But but the sort of strategy is no strategy, it seems. Well, Hamas is this is consistent with what they've done in the past, which is they're perfectly happy to see ordinary innocent Gazan citizens being slaughtered. That's why they put themselves in and amidst uh, those civilians, as Admiral Kirby just said. Uh, they don't mind sacrificing uh, their people uh, to the, their sort of twisted idea of a cause. Um, from their sort of narrow tactical perspective, they think that, well, we landed a blow. That's victory enough. Mm -hmm. um, we we surprised and shocked the Israelis, and that's victory enough. We we inflicted the single largest number of casualties on the state of Israel uh, in, on any single day in its entire history, including the wars that it has fought. For for if you if you look at the world through that sort of very twisted lens that Hamas has, all of these things amount to a victory. And if in exchange for this victory. Uh, Thousands, tens of thousands of Gazans have died. That's a price Hamas is willing to pay. And to start put into motion uh, a war that will result in untold numbers of casualties yes. and destruction. Bobby Ghosh and Susan Glasser, please stick around, my friends, because I want to talk to you both about the growing concern that the warfare between Israel and Hamas will escalate into a larger regional conflict. We'll have more on that coming up next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. 
connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. The complex situation on the ground in the aftermath of Hamas's attack on Israel and Israel's retaliation is sparking concerns about wider conflict in the region. Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, says it detected a number of rockets fired from Syria into Israeli territory, a first since this conflict began. In return, the IDF fired artillery and mortar shells. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights now says a Palestinian faction carried out that initial rocket attack. And on Israel's border with Lebanon, the militant group Hezbollah today claimed credit for a missile attack on an Israeli tank in the third straight day of violence there. To Israel's southwest, Egypt is resisting calls to open its border with the Gaza Strip for fear of an onslaught of refugees. And looming over all of this is Iran, which reportedly planned, trained and gave Hamas the green light to carry out its terror attack on Saturday. Let's bring back Bobby Ghosh, columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and Susan Glasser, staff writer at The New Yorker. Bobby, let me just start with you. We were talking about Hamas's calculations and all this. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Iran's motivations. We know there's like a burgeoning alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia, not something that Iran likes. But is that really, I mean, is this the response to a sort of consolidation of powers that Iran doesn't like? I don't think it's the only reason. Iran has, uh, for decades, uh, since the revolution, since this group of theocrats took over Iran, uh, has set itself against uh, uh, the state of Israel and has threatened the state of Israel over and over again. And over decades, it has built this network of proxy groups. Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Gaza, the Houthis in um, in Yemen, the ter- Shiite groups in Iraq, to to serve its interests in all of those countries, but also to encircle Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 closeness, the growing closeness between Israel and all the Gulf Arab states, states not only uh, Saudi Arabia but all the Gulf Arab states, does not fit into the Iran's plan for the region. And and so that is one more reason why uh, Iran um, sort of has been encouraging these groups. And I can imagine would uh, uh, would would certainly uh, approve of this action, whether the, whether or not they actually greenlit it. They've been celebrating it. Everybody yeah. from the supreme leader of Iran on down has been celebrating it. Um, would this would Iran uh, have approved uh, an operation like this, even if the Saudis and the uh, Israelis were not having these negotiations? Very likely. I, I, I don't think that that is that may be one more straw, but it's 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 not even necessarily the last straw. Mm. I, the fact that sort of Iranian backing of this in and of itself represents a sort of changing of the guard, if you will. The Wall Street Journal um, notes this and I'll read it. To you, Susan, for thoughts. Iran's backing of a coordinated group of Arab militias is ominous for Israel. In previous conflicts, the Soviet Union was the ultimate patron of Israel's Arab enemies and was always able to pressure them to reach some type of accommodation or recognize a red line, according to Bernard Hudson, who is a former counterterrorism chief for the CIA. The Soviets never considered Israel a permanent foe, he said. Iran's leadership clearly does. 
yeah, I mean, it's a chilling thought. And that, of course, brings the the nuclear question back into the picture as well. Uh, you know, one of the big uh, sort of strategic game changers in the Middle East that has also shaped a lot of this diplomacy on the part of Netanyahu and the United States is the fear that Israel, sorry, that Iran has become closer and closer to becoming a nuclear power. That is a profoundly destabilizing potential in the region, and especially as uh, Iran has spent years, uh, not just, you know, this particular operation, but spent years building up these proxy forces, building up a network of terror groups and uh, seeking wherever possible, not only to oppose Israel, but to oppose the Gulf Arab states and Saudi Arabia. I think that you would see one of the main drivers uh, behind Saudi Arabia's interest in uh, making a peace arrangement with Israel is is the prospect of an Iranian nuclear weapon becoming closer and closer. And then you're going to see pressure on the side of the Saudis, of course, were that to happen to obtain their own uh, uh, mm. sources of nuclear power. And then we're off to the races. The other thing I haven't seen mentioned as much that I think is very important. Remember, the other context here is that there is a new era of superpower competition. One of the main reasons that I've heard in Washington articulated by officials as to why the Biden administration is trying to pursue this peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel is because it's in the framework of this new global competition between the United States and China and Russia. And I think that that has been left out as we have all understandably focused on the horrors on the ground in Israel, looked at the immediate regional problems. But remember that the context here is a new age of superpower competition as well. It's not the U.S. versus the Soviet Union, but it's something a 21st century equivalent. Well, and the fact that Ukraine is factoring into the aid that we may give to Israel Republicans in Congress calling for freezing of that aid and focusing uh, freezing of aid to Iran, questioning whether we're going to give any aid to Ukraine. And then the open question of what happens in Israel. It's as you say, it's 21st century globalism. Uh, Bobby Ghosh, Susan Glasser, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate it. When we come back, when Hamas breached Israel's high tech defensive wall, it was the culmination of a long period of planning and preparation. So how did Israel fail to see it coming? We'll have more on that next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. In December of 2021, the government of Israel announced the completion of a very sophisticated, very expensive wall on the Israeli side of the 40-mile-long border it shares with Gaza. That wall took almost four years and more than 140,000 tons of iron and steel to be created. The Israelis called it the Iron Wall. 
To catch any movement near the border, the Iron Wall has hundreds of cameras and radars and sensors. It has razor wire at the top, a 20-foot metal barrier, and a subterranean concrete wall to block any underground tunnels. To this day, it is unclear how deep that concrete barrier runs. Despite all of that, Hamas terrorists managed to breach the wall this past weekend and attack Israel. First, attackers used commercial drones to bomb observation towers along the wall. Then they launched thousands of rockets into Israel while other militants flew across the border with gliders. You can see them here circled in red. Once they were on the other side of the wall, Hamas bombed the barrier itself. These videos show men crossing on foot and driving motorcycles through the holes in the fence. Then bulldozers arrived and did the rest, allowing for passage of of larger vehicles through that wall. This was a sophisticated plan, one that likely took weeks or months or even years to plan and execute. Joining me now is my friend Ali Belshi. He is reporting live from the city of Ashdod in Israel, which is about 15 miles from the northern border with Gaza. Gaza. Ali, it's great to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. I know we have a slight delay, so I'm just going to get right to it. Let me just first ask you, how much pressure Israeli authorities are under to explain exactly how this happened without any advance understanding on the part of Israeli security forces? Uh, It it is a great deal of pressure. In fact, we're hearing it from a lot of people, despite the fact that, generally speaking, after an attack like the one we saw on Saturday uh, on any country, you would see unity. Uh, Even some political divisions that have been roiling this country for the last year uh, have been put to the side. But there are a number of people who have said this might actually be the end of Benjamin Netanyahu for two reasons. One is he is the man who keeps coming back as the prime minister of this country on a on a a, a national security platform, on the idea that he can keep this country safe. And secondly, there have been distractions in this country for so long, as you know, hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets every week in protest, uh, that there is some sense that perhaps their eye was off the ball on Gaza. It is unbelievable. The images you just showed to understand how Gaza, which is always patrolled by drones, so Israel has a complete view of everything that happens in Gaza, could have achieved, how Hamas could have achieved training paragliders or or doing developing the technology that they needed to do that. In fact, just tonight, there are still Gaza's 15 miles over there. It's dark because there's no uh, there's no electricity, so you can't see it. But we're seeing uh, we're feeling the the concussive booms of airstrikes into Gaza and we're seeing Iron Dome coming out of it. So there's still rockets. There's still rockets being launched from Gaza after four nights of being pounded uh, by airstrikes. 24 hours a day. In fact, they they switch out every four hours. Uh, four hours, the Air, uh, Air Force does the airstrikes. You hear the jets over overhead. And then for four hours, the Navy does the airstrikes uh, from the from the Mediterranean Sea. So constant airstrikes, uh, constant uh, missile strikes on Gaza. And they're still sending rockets into Israel. The, the Israeli people are very confused about how the one of the greatest intelligence services in the world missed this. And that is a question a lot of people have, and they're very angry about. Yeah, and the, well, the anger and the confusion doesn't end there because there are, of course, the hostages that are still left behind. We are to presume that they are being held in the vast tunnel network in and around Gaza. I, I wonder, when you talk to families, what is their expectation? Are they hopeful that there will be some sort of rescue operation launched to save their loved ones? 
They want their loved ones saved as the number one priority, which is understandable. They they want that done before the retribution and the decapitation of Hamas. Part of the issue here is they know that the goal is to get rid of Hamas. But they also know that while their hostages, uh, while their family members are being held hostage, they could be human shields. Those people could be uh, in the tunnels. They could be anywhere in, in Gaza. This is a, a vast, uh, it's a very small, but a, a, a vastly uh, heavily populated place. In a, and it's very densely populated. Apartment buildings with many stories in them. As I say, Israel can see everything uh, that it can see from the sky. It can't see what's inside those buildings. And there's a real sense that Hamas may be using these hostages as human shields. You can't bomb a building if you don't know that your hostages aren't there. How do you get the hostages out? Well, there's a talk of a ground operation, but that would be, you know, street to street battle in an urban environment, not something that is easy to do, as America learned in in the Middle East, or it could be a negotiated settlement. America doesn't have, America and Israel don't have good relations with Hamas. They don't have good relations with Iran that is very influential in Hamas, as you just talked to Bobby Ghosh about. Uh, They do have relations with Qatar, that's a possibility, but it's unsavory for right now for Israelis to think about the idea of negotiating with uh, with Hamas. Bottom line, though, is people who have family members who they are who are being held hostage or they believe are being held hostage want that to be the number one priority. Right now, the bombing you're hearing is supposedly on Hamas installations or political uh, operations, but the way Gaza is set up and built, you can't help but kill civilians when you're bombing. And that is something that Hamas has said they will have retribution for. If people are killed without warning, they say they'll start killing hostages. That's got everybody in Israel further on edge than they already are. Yeah, Ali, just on that note, can you can you report out anything, any more details about the situation in Gaza? Because we are, of course, hearing those reports about the bombing of civilian infrastructure. And given the already dire situation over there for civilians, again, I wonder what the latest is on that front. Well, they, uh, there's a siege uh, that, that Israel has imposed on Gaza uh, in which no food, water, or fuel can get in. Now, this is important. It's why Gaza, if you can see it on the other camera I've got, it's why it's dark. It's too far to see it. You can see uh, Ashkelon is what you're seeing. That's the city where the lights are. Gaza is beyond that. It's completely dark. And the reason it's dark is because uh, their power station, their electrical power station, runs on diesel fuel. There's no source of diesel fuel in Gaza, so it's all imported, and Israel controls everything that comes in uh, to Gaza. So that's all cut off, and there's a fear that by tomorrow or so, all the fuel that runs that station will be gone. There's also uh, water shortages and food shortages, and the Rafah uh, border crossing, which is on the, the, the bottom end of Gaza, going into Egypt, that has been attacked. Uh, there, are mil- there are people who are, mil- uh, who are assembling there. They're trying to get into Egypt. 183,000 people have been displaced from their homes because of the bombing. That's according to the United Nations. There is nowhere for them to go. Mm. That's the problem. They're trying to get to Egypt. There's going to be a food shortage, and within a few days, because of the food, water, and fuel shortage, there may be a humanitarian disaster unfolding in a place that was already one of the worst places on earth. Just a horrible situation all around. Ali Velshi, thank you for making the time. Stay safe out there, my friend, doing great reporting. We really appreciate you. We have more ahead this evening as Israel prepares for a likely ground assault in Gaza. It is calling on hundreds of thousands of reservists to join the fight against Hamas. We will have more on that right after the break. Israel's tech industry is one of the country's fastest growing sectors. It accounts for almost a fifth of the country's entire GDP. 
In and around Tel Aviv, there are so many giant offices housing major tech companies, including Google and Intel and Amazon, that the area is known as Silicon Wadi. Wadi is Arabic for valley. In fact, Israel has so many startup software companies that the country as a whole has earned the nickname the Startup Nation. Now, I'm telling you this because these tech workers are among the people who have been called up in the last 72 hours to take up arms and serve in the Israeli military, which has summoned roughly 360,000 reservists. It is the largest and fastest mobilization since the Yom Kippur War 50 years ago. One Israeli venture capitalist who works in big tech, a man named David Citron, tells the Washington Post that Early Saturday morning, as Hamas militants staged their brutal and surprise attack in southern Israel, he heard air raid sirens as he fed his children breakfast. By the afternoon, at 1 p.m., he was on a military base near Gaza. Roughly 4% of Israel's population of 9.8 million people are being called up to serve, which is separating families, forcing them to leave jobs and lives behind, so as to take up arms against Hamas. Even before Saturday's brutal attack, military service played a central role in Israeli society. Once Israelis turn 18, they are required to complete a mandatory military service. After that, they can enter the reserves and can be called to duty at any time until the age of 40. But today, even those Israelis who have aged out of that requirement are volunteering. 56-year-old Noam Lanier lost multiple family members in the Yom Kippur War half a century ago. He is now going to fight alongside his two sons, telling the Washington Post, now it is my time. Lanier is also one of the leaders of Brothers and Sisters in Arms, which is a group of reservists who have been the backbone of the ongoing pro-democracy movement in Israel. For months, these reservists and millions of others have protested against the Israeli government's plan to overhaul its Supreme Court in a bid to give more power to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the same time that Netanyahu is fighting corruption charges. Some reservists previously threatened to ignore the call of duty, but now all of that appears to have changed. It is still unclear just how long this mobilization will last, 24-year-old reservist Michael Goldberg put it this way, there is a lot of mixed emotion, a lot of adrenaline, and a lot of unknowns. When we come back, traumatized citizens inside Israel are asking their government, led by Prime Minister Netanyahu, why and how this happened. That is next. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has long been billed by his supporters as Mr. Security. But after facing corruption charges and protests inside Israel over his efforts at judicial reform, Netanyahu now has a lot to explain on the security front. After the deadly surprise attack by Hamas this weekend, Netanyahu's reputation as Mr. Security is openly and actively being called into question. And he is not the only one. As, a, as former New York Times Jerusalem bureau chief Jody Rudoran puts it, the failure of, of Israeli and U.S. intelligence to detect plans for this unprecedented coordinated assault and Israel's inadequate response in the first 36 hours afterward will rightly be the subject of investigatory commissions and commentary for months to come. The most plausible explanation I have heard so far is that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government took its eye off the ball, moving thousands of troops from the Gaza command 
to protect Israeli settlers in the occupied West Bank and focusing far too much energy on suppressing pro-democracy protests rather than thwarting actual threats. Joining me now is the author of that, Jody Rudoran, editor-in-chief of The Forward. Jody, thanks for being here. I'd love to get your assessment of, of just sort of the landscape for Netanyahu domestically in the wake of this horrific, brutal attack. You know, it's interesting, Alex, you referred to him as Mr. Security. And I mean, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who I covered for four years when I was there as bureau chief, he he sees himself as the protector of Israel and actually the whole Jewish people from the existential threat of Iran and from threats. And he has won elections over and over again based on fear, based on the idea that Hamas and Hezbollah and Iran presented these threats to Israel. However, he is not a warmongering uh, leader. He has actually showed a lot of restraint in his prior um, outings with Gaza and in other settings. And so this is a new framework for him, um, as well as because of the political context that you set us up with. So what is likely to happen, I think, is um, there will be a unity government. There are negotiations going on right now to bring some of these opposition leaders into this government. The question really is, whether Netanyahu will be forced to kick out some of the right-wing ministers that he has made his coalition with so far, or whether those people will enter without uh, conditions. And there will likely be a broader government soon to prosecute this war on Hamas. But I think it's hard to imagine, I mean, in many ways, it's hard to imagine any politicians surviving the sort of massive screw-up that led to this attack. That said, Netanyahu is a politician with I have more than nine lives. I mean, he has mm. resurrected himself and made deals with different politicians over and over and over again. So nobody should count him out. I, I do wonder, you know, from the outside, it looks like there's remarkable nationwide unity in this moment. And I, I'm sure when it concerns the victims of these barbaric attacks, that stands true. But you've seemed to suggest that there is actually I mean, there's a real push for reform, even as the mourning continues. I mean, I think there's a bunch of strands to this, Alex. It's, this is a tiny country, and so there's a lot of unity around the tragedy, in part because everybody is affected. Everybody I know knows somebody who was killed, was kidnapped, is deploying, all of those things. It's hard for us, I think, to imagine how affected everyone in the country um, is directly. That said, I would say that the the open questioning of the government's response in the first two days especially is something I've never seen before at a time of war. In 2014 and in 2012, when the wars broke out in Gaza, you saw a, a different kind of unity, a sort of we all stand together when we're under threat. And this time I've seen just open questioning of the leadership. The third thing that's worth looking at is the protest movement that has been this kind of remarkable force in Israeli society, bringing out more than 100,000 people every week for 40 weeks and showing the, the stark divisions across society. Those people, those organizers are now organizing a lot of the civilian response. They're the ones who are helping people get resettled and evacuate. They're the ones who are helping clean up. Um, that makes a lot of sense in terms of the military massing um, on the border. But given the frustration with the slow response on Saturday, 
to now see that the the brothers in arms, the the reservists who were resisting the democ, the who are leading the pro democracy movement and resisting the judicial overhaul, now they're the ones who are responding to this tragedy in the most direct kind of public service way. I think says a lot about um, the long term impact of those protests. Just one more for you, Jody. Just there is some theorizing that Hamas was trying to capitalize on division within uh, Israel in terms of the timing of these attacks. Do you have a theory on that? I mean, I think that's I think that's a solid theory. I, I believe that's part of it. Um, I also believe there's credence to the idea that whether Iran actually orchestrated this attack or simply encouraged it um, in its general backing of Hamas because of the impending negotiations between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Both of those things make a lot of sense to me. I also think that, um, you know, Hamas wanted to attack when it could attack. So yeah. I think, I mean, I guess the real question is, in in the past, we have seen Hamas and Islamic Jihad also show some restraint because of the inevitable level of retaliation. So this, it's very surprising that they have the capabilities to launch such an assault, but it's also interesting that they would take such a risk. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine the fallout. It is all hard to imagine, even as we see it play out on our screens. Jody Rudoran, thank you so much for your time tonight. That is our show for this evening. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.